Welcome to episode 186 of the IOPN We Do Science podcast, the Institute of Performance Nutrition's podcast, and I am the host, Dr. Laurent Banak. So what did we get into in today's discussion, today's episode? Well, I invited back Professor Craig Sell from Manchester Metropolitan University, who, as you know, if you're a regular listener, has contributed many podcasts on topics from buffering agents to protein and bone. And today, our conversation revolves around this very important topic of whether or not nutrition can play a significant role in the prevention and treatment of injuries in athletes, whether that's recreational athletes or elite pro athletes, of course. And there's all sorts of of angles here. We we discuss the various areas that nutrition has been shown to support athletes and exercisers in the sport and exercise nutrition literature. But we also talk about the value of looking broader than that in maybe the more clinical literature, public health literature, for example. And we'll discuss that and you'll understand why there could well be some value in looking at that. And just generally, we have a good chat and I know that you're going to enjoy what we talked about. But before you go ahead and listen to that episode, please go to our website at www.theiopn.com. You can learn about our online postgraduate level diploma in sports nutrition, our master's level diploma in sports nutrition, our software called SEMPRO to support professional sports nutritionists and nutrition coaches and so on. You can check out our new community called a professional development program, our PDP, everything from a safe community for you to basically interact with other current aspiring sports nutritionists, access journal, all sorts of resources, research appraisal guides, all sorts of cool stuff is going to be found in the PDP. And also you can learn about our podcast, of course, previous episodes, that sort of thing. And also our new or most recent research publications to include Making Sense of Muscle Protein Synthesis and our very latest publication, which is Evidence-Based Practice Guidelines for Sports Nutritionists. Anyway, you can access all of that at our website, www.theiopn.com. Now, here's my conversation with Professor Craig Sell, all about nutrition and treatment and prevention of injuries. So hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. We almost started this podcast conversation about 20 minutes ago, but my good friend and colleague here, Professor Craig Sell, welcome back. We've been messing around. But look, it's wonderful to have you back, Craig. I always enjoy a good chat with you, not just because you're, you're a good friend, but also, well, I mean, you've been contributing one way or the other to these podcasts or my own development as it happens for many years now. I must have done something right to convince you to come back for another another good chat. No, thanks for having me, Lawrence. It's always good fun. Always enjoyable. Well, let's see where this goes. <laughs> so look, we've done some interesting podcasts in the past. We even had a semi-serious podcast all about context, which is quite a few years ago now. <laughs> I can't even remember how far back that was, but we just looked up when we last spoke, which was a few years ago now, just before the pandemic. Remember that, everyone, where you and Dr. Brian Saunders were on and we were talking about beta alanine, which links to other conversations I've had with you about buffering agents and so on. But also, you've been involved in a number of other podcasts where we've talked about a variety of different things, including, of course, 
bone health, we had your better half, I know is the required statement there. Now, Professor Kirsty there was on the podcast with you and we were talking about a variety of things, but where we also talked about female athlete health and bone health and and, and so on. But you've got all sorts of areas of expertise and years of of research and and so on behind you. Before we we get into today's topic, which is going to be about nutrition for the prevention and treatment of injuries in athletes, which is a pretty broad topic, why don't you just bring us up to date? You've moved around a bit since we last had a podcast conversation. So uh, tell us where you're at now and what you're doing. Yeah, so now I've I've moved on from from Nottingham Trent University and and, and the Shape Research Centre there. So I, I'm now, and I've got to try and remember the new title. I've been forgetting it recently, but I, I'm now Professor of Human Physiology and Nutrition at the Institute of Sport at Manchester Metropolitan University, and this is a it's sort of a great sort of initiative on behalf of MMU. So the Institute of Sport is really, you know, there to sort of be a, a transdisciplinary focal point for everything going on across the university that sort of could be relevant to sport, health and well-being. So it, it drags in a lot of influences from, from different parts of the university, all under the banner of sport and exercise and, and health and well-being. And it, and it really is creating... You know, I'm only just getting going, but really is creating some very interesting potential synergies, even across into things like art and design and law and sport business and all of these sorts of things. So it's it's a really great initiative and it's broadening my horizons quite a bit, which is which is good. Well, since we both entered the field, but particularly you entered academia earlier than me, particularly as a researcher, etc., well before me, you've seen this field explode i mean so much has happened you know it was sort of the wild west that well it wasn't quite the wild west days sort of 10 15 years ago but things have changed a lot to the point now as you've just described you've got more than just a pe or a sports science department i mean we're talking about many different disciplines within sports science sport and exercise science sports psychology nutrition sports medicine and oh, i mean there's just loads sports analysts sports management and so on. Does it feel like a roller coaster at this point? I mean, how are you feeling about all this? It's exciting. I mean, I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, when I started my degree, I'm trying to think back sort of early 90s here. I, I think when I applied to do sport and exercise science, there were maybe something like about eight places in the country that did sport and exercise science based degrees. And obviously, as you know, I ended up going to, to Liverpool John Moores to do mine. But I think, you know, I, I wouldn't you know, be able to hazard a guess as to how many different universities do sport and exercise science courses now. But of course, it's not only sport and exercise science now. There's so many different courses. There must be hundreds of different courses now in relation to or in broadly in the context of sport and exercise. It, it really is, you know, a huge, a huge business for, for universities now. But I mean, I think. It creates some exciting opportunities to to look, you know, I think particularly in around things like AI and technology and, you know, art and design, like I said earlier, different ways of marketing sport, you know, how you, you know, develop sports business, sports law, all of these sorts of things. Wearables, of course, are interesting in, in that sort of former category as well. So it really is interesting and it creates a lot of, you know, opportunities for for, for new study and, and new considerations in the area. Some of it well beyond me, I hasten to add. But beyond us both, mate, I mean, it is hard to keep up with some of this stuff, particularly when you start talking about technology and AI. And, and of course, you know, and we've talked a little bit about these things with various guests in the past. You know, a lot of this stuff still has the illusion of being super 
cutting edge, whatever that phrase means, uh, but more importantly, accurate, reliable, blah, blah, blah. You know, even thinking about things like body composition testing, something as basic as a skinfold caliper, actually, if used properly, might be more useful or reliable than the many gadgets you can buy at many shops and stores, you know, on the high street nowadays, and even indeed possibly some of the laboratory-grade equipment. But obviously, context is going to matter, as we always like to talk about. Look, and yes, there's the growth and explosion of all these different disciplines. A lot of it is, yes, to do with supporting and enhancing athlete and athlete performance and athlete health, something we're going to touch on a bit today as well. But of course, Exercise is a recreational passion for many people. Some people will also engage in exercise to, you know, for health purposes. They may not really want to do it, or at least not initially, but they're doing it anyway because they've been advised to. There are many different reasons why somebody might engage in physical activity. And with that comes a number of side effects, of course, one of which hopefully is improved health for athletes, improved health and performance, loss of body fat, gain of muscle mass, improvements in bone density, blood lipid profiles, cardiovascular profile, whatever. But there are other kinds of side effects too. And one of which, of course, might be the inevitable injury. So, our topic of conversation today is going to be about that, really, or I wanted to focus, you know, this idea of, well, nutrition, we're all about nutrition, that's our main focus here, whether we're we're researchers or practitioners or just very high-end consumers of, of this information, and we want to learn about the evidence. But it's a really interesting one, because I guess maybe we'll start this question off with, well, we'll come into some definitions, because I think that's important, but just a quick jump in question for you, Craig. I mean. In a nutshell, nutrition does it really have a relevant role to in the in the treatment and prevention of injuries? I mean, that's the first question I think we need to ask. You know, is this a sort of a flyby thing, or or does it have some legs? No pun intended, obviously. Yeah. Well, I um, it's a really difficult one, isn't it? Because I mean, you think you go back to sort of saying, well, well, what's an injury? You know, what type of injury are you talking about? Which tissue is primarily being affected, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then when you sort of go back and, and and think maybe about some specific tissues. And, and obviously I mainly work in the area of, you know, the musculoskeletal system. But I mean, I think when you, when you look at certain tissues and you, we know that they're modulated to a certain extent by nutrition, it was probably not the only, well, certainly isn't the only factor probably isn't the main factor, but I think it, it probably is a relevant factor that can certainly help. I mean, I think, you know, all else being equal and taking care of, you know, some of the other, you know, more fundamental things like training load, adaptability, you know, and then you've got those, and I explained things like, you know, trying to protect yourself against contact and contact injury and all of those sorts of things. I think all of those things being equal, then then certainly, you know, we know that nutritional elements are capable of modulating the tissues that we're talking about. And, and so therefore, sort of stands to reason that they can help support the adaptability in terms of a recovery from an injury as much as they can to a response to training. But again, like I say, it's, it, I, I don't suppose it's going to be the the predominant factor, but but I think I think there is a pertinent factor there in terms of the effects of nutrition on on recovery from injury. Prevention, that's a trickier one. Again, depends on the depends on the the, the injury you're talking about, how it develops. But I mean again, I think if you take it indirectly from the point of view that these things can help support a you know a more robust 
musculoskeletal system, then obviously then that stands to reason that there's potentially a, a greater resistance to some types of injury there. Absolutely. Yeah. And look, you've touched upon bits of this in various areas of your research and subsequent publications. And uh, part of this conversation has been influenced by the review that that Graham Close, yourself and Keith Barr and Stephane Bermond did on nutrition for prevention and treatment of injuries. It, okay, in this case, it was more focused on that special edition in track and field athletes, but it's entirely relevant to our conversation today. And we'll get into that a little bit. And there are certain areas in that review, that, of course, that are particularly your areas of specialty. And I just want to remind the listeners that I have done a podcast about nutrition and injury back in 2019 with the late, great Kevin Tipton, Professor Kevin Tipton. I mean, basically that entire podcast is central to probably the most important areas that we're going to talk about today, but you should listen to that. But before we get into this, actually address the evidence how strong is the evidence? Where does it even come from? And maybe there's evidence in other populations that might have some value from outside of, of athletes, but could be used maybe to support athletes. And we'll explore that. I know that we've had a good chat about that before, but very much it, it's going to be focused more on treatment rather than prevention, right? So before we do that, I thought the prevention issue is quite interesting because depending on how we look at this and you frame the question, thoughts in my head and your head and and the listeners will be, well, nutrition impacts certain areas significantly, like body composition, for example, which will have a clear impact on injury prevention by virtue of reducing sort of dead weight, so to speak, and the risks that that can have and or under eating, low energy availability and the various issues that that might lead towards injury, which actually you'd be better explain that than me of course and then there's the other side of it of course which i do find really interesting is is how nutrition impacts cognitive function decision making and of course you you have to make a, a few wrong decisions and you can get injured you know just by virtue of, of doing some things wrong or, or or like i have done recently where i've overdone a bit of training and got injured that was a decision that was involved in my injury as opposed to being someone else's fault so before we get into that maybe you could just tackle the prevention side of things but from that perspective particularly things like energy availability i know there are you know i'm thinking bone obviously a, a chronic this doesn't have to be an acute issue does it craig no and i think that's right i mean again it depends on what you're talking about so if we if we take bone as the primary example you've you've got you've got an example of each one of those there so you, you could have those kind of very acute injuries that are usually sort of what you might term contact fractures, for example, which, for example, you know, will be relatively common in things like, you know, football, rugby, where these are contact sports and you get the, the single and significant application of a load more than the system can can take and, and, and then you get, you know, a break in, in the bone. And that's, a, that's quite an acute injury. But then also you've got these sort of adaptations in the bone that occur over, you know, longer periods of time, these overuse injuries in bone, things like stress fractures and other bone stress injuries. And of course, these are much more sort of chronically developed. They, they, they don't occur with the acute application of a force. It's the repeated mechanical load over time that causes an injury. So are those things the same with the nutritional input into the prevention of those things be the same? Probably some things yes and probably some things no but i think you know one of the things certainly from a contact fracture perspective is well of course you can't control the contact you can't control necessarily 
always when you're going to go into contact, although there is definitely some decision-making elements there, and I think that makes it even more complicated. You can't necessarily control what somebody else is going to do or when you're going to go into contact or when that contact is inappropriately applied just as you turn in a particular direction that leads to leads to a specific collision that causes the injury. So all you can really do under those circumstances is make sure you've got a, as prepared a, a tissue, for example, as you possibly can. And, you know, in other words, as strong a bone as you, you possibly can. We know there are some elements of the diet that are important in the development of a, of a strong skeleton. So all of those sorts of general nutrients that your, your granny used to tell you are good for healthy bones and teeth, well, all of those things remain relevant. And under those circumstances, of course, avoiding the deficiency is one of the things that we definitely want to do. And so if you can promote a strong bone, then then that is good. Obviously, there is a bit of evidence that it kind of works both ways, that actually stress fracture injuries, for example, these overuse injuries of bone, they can occur even in those individuals with otherwise very strong bones. So it's not just about necessarily preparing as strong a bone as possible under those circumstances, also about maybe reducing down some of the, the potential things that might damage the bone over time. And so one of the things we well, you, you mentioned low energy availability, and I think one of the things that's reasonably clear is that sort of chronic low energy availability over time is not something that's particularly good for the bone. The bone doesn't like it. The bone doesn't doesn't respond very well to it. And certainly, I think, you know, increased injury is a likely outcome in relation to sort of prolonged and chronic low energy availability. What we're less sure on is the sort of shorter term or intermittent types of low energy availability and whether that really increases susceptibility to to injury, particularly bone injury. Um, But if we just talk, for example, about chronic low energy availability, then I think that's relatively clear. And then, you know, and other things are also along that same vein are becoming more evident. Things like low carbohydrate availability as well as low energy availability, for example, adequate protein, et cetera, et cetera. And all of these things probably do contribute to the prevention or flipping it the other way around the increased risk of a of an injury yeah it felt important to me to discuss that because as i said this topic is normally approached purely from the i've got an injury now what can we do about it whereas prior prevention prevents you know what performance well that may or may not be you know relevant to most people but it strikes me that that being in a as robust a position as is possible is going to help, particularly if you need to immediately start to recover from said injury. And if you're in a bad way nutritionally to begin with, it's going to take a bit longer, presumably. Let's just come to that that word injury. So in the context of an athlete and or somebody who's just recreationally active, goes to the gym, you know, runs throughout the week, that sort of thing. What do you guys mean by injury when you state that in your publications here and what are the most common ones anyway that most people are likely to be dealing with that's a very difficult question to answer in some respects because you know it's so so broad so i mean i think injuries are massive they they could be sort of pretty much anything to any part of the anatomy but i think the two things that we sort of separate out when we're talking about athlete injury in terms of you know i suppose broad classifications let's say for example are those injuries for example that are a little bit more severe and they may well cause for example a bit of lost time out of training it may require a decent proportion of immobilization of a a limb for example 
And of course, under those circumstances, your activity is significantly reduced, let alone, of course, your ability to be able to train, let alone, of course, your ability to be able to train effectively. And those kind of longer term injuries have more serious implications, of course, for recovery and for eventual performance when you return than maybe the second type, which is kind of like they maybe they sort of like slightly more minor injuries, the stresses and strain type injuries that are. Yeah, okay, they're going to cause a little bit of, uh, you know, a short period of time out of training or maybe a little bit of reduced movement, but they're not going to completely stop you necessarily from training or from doing some form of training over a, a more prolonged period of time. So I think there's there's sort of two slightly different classifications there, whatever injury you're talking about, whether you're talking about contact fractures, stress fractures, muscle injuries of the hamstrings, for example, or, you know, tendinopathy ligament damage ligament injury they're kind of the main things that you know certainly in the musculoskeletal space we would be we would be thinking about would be muscle injuries and and the common ones are hamstring injuries bone contact injuries bone stress injuries and then tendinopathy and, and ligament damage of course would be the other things we would primarily be focused upon Again, I'm just raising the topic because, you know, we use simplistic terms like an injury. Well, that means a lot of things, as you've already pointed out. Also, to a diagnostician, to a clinician, their assessment of it will vary from minor to severe levels of injury. But of course, that your own perception might differ from that. And I'm thinking, I mean, those of you that are parents, you'll know full well, you know, your kid scratches himself and can have a complete and utter meltdown thinking they're you know about to die just like soccer players with a scratch <laughs> uh, all the way to rugby players and we've all seen these guys american football players etc ice hockey players you see them sustain huge injuries and they just keep playing and there's something there too because of course you know there's a decision is made by the individual and or a coach or a referee i'm thinking contact sports combat sports you know is this life-threatening is this career ending you know what do we even mean by this so it's quite an interesting topic but i guess what we're interested in injuries lauren right so i mean i think that's the other big thing is repeat injuries to the to the same tissue or, or joint for example or sometimes one of the things i think that is underknown is is how one injury might or during the recovery from one injury you might end up causing a slightly different injury because you're modifying the way you're training or you're not prepared to come back properly or maybe you're not properly fueled or prepared to to come back to training and then all of a sudden one injury follows another injury follows another injury and we can all sort of think about players in our own sport for whom that would be directly relevant for me as a nutritionist That's almost the most exciting area, actually, is a buzzword within elite sport, for example, is return to play. We want our player to get off the bench or wherever they are and back on pitch as quickly as possible, or we want our fighter back in the ring or whatever. They're they're not much use outside of, of those arenas. And or for those of us that take their training and exercise seriously, you know, a week off training is a, it doesn't help your goals, whether it's for health or performance or your mental health, for example, if there's lots of different things. And of course, nutrition may not solve the problem like a medical procedure, surgery, analgesic, anti-inflammatories, et cetera. But it's this business of return to play or return to function that I find Interesting. And you raised an area that wasn't really in my head, but I think almost more important actually is this issue of repetitive injury and this business of you return to play or you get back to the gym or you go back to start running again, maybe a little bit too soon, you know, without having given your body the opportunity to recover. And of course, recovery is huge in the 
sports science, sports nutrition space. But injury recovery, that how quick do these things recover is an interesting area. And of course, it's very individual, but a a factor that can influence this, of course, is, you know, is nutrition, which we'll delve into as we get into this this conversation. You know, there's gonna be different areas that we could chat about, Craig, and there's gonna be areas that you want to spend more time on given your own very high levels of expertise in some of these areas. But I wanted to loosely cover the main areas that nutrition can play a role. So for example, nutrition and its role in preventing and treating muscle injuries. Is there some things there that you want to get into that's worth discussing in this conversation? I think some of the interesting bits there is just what that means. What evidence is there? And evidence is difficult to come by in this space. So if we start sort of more generically, you know, there's very limited, what I would say would be quality research evidence on nutrition to prevent musculoskeletal injuries and probably even less in the relation to to management and recovery from musculoskeletal injury and i think quite often that's because conducting prospective randomized control trials which we would sort of consider as being quite high levels of scientific evidence are extremely difficult to do because you can't take a human induce an injury in that human and then follow them up prospectively with either a placebo or your active you know nutritional ingredient and so it's it's very very difficult to conduct those kinds of of studies on on humans so that's why a lot of our research i think is probably conducted on on animals and cells in in that space or we refer from other sort of lower levels i suppose of of injury and what i mean by that is and, and primarily related to the the muscle injury is that we kind of extrapolate or have to extrapolate a little bit from from things like muscle damage studies through to to what we think we are going to know about muscle injury and of course muscle damage muscle soreness is not necessarily the same thing in terms of the extent of tissue damage or the development of the injury or obviously the the, the level of immobilization that may go on afterwards and all these sorts of things as in a full-blown muscle injury and so i think it's very very difficult to say okay we've got clear evidence here of a particular nutrient benefiting clearly benefiting the recovery from from muscle injury it's also very difficult, even if you think, okay, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to prospectively wait and see how many people get an injury. Then I'm going to randomize them and follow them over time. So you're waiting for people to have an injury, which is always a strange sort of thing. You're like sitting on the sidelines that kind of hoping that the players and people don't get injured, but at the same time, knowing that if they don't, you've got no study. But of course, you know, the incidence rates, particularly if you're only focused on a single team or a couple of teams, the incidence rates of some of these injuries would be relatively low. So it may take you years to get that kind of level of evidence, by which time everything's changed anyway. So again, even that's very difficult. So I think what we're really I mean, somewhat limited to here, and there's not even much of the, and you know more about this than me, is, is we need more high quality case studies, I think, in athletes that at least give us some information specific to humans and specific to to athletes that, that otherwise we wouldn't be able to get. I'm sort of treading on your areas of expertise there. In relation no, I to completely agree. I think like- what you're saying that there's an issue here is that well, we're assuming everyone's the same and they're not, obviously. I mean, as human beings, we've all got more in common than we do with each other than maybe with another species or whatever. But, you know, this business of conducting research on elite athletes is not on impossible because they're not. I mean, what, what Premier League football player is going to volunteer to have his hamstring 
torn or whatever they're not and then even if they were they're not going to let you put them into the placebo group they want to go in the group that's going to give them the highest chance of recovery and if and it wouldn't be just them it would be their agent their insurance company yeah i mean you'd Absolutely. never get that past the ethics board anyway in the first place let's not get into ethics boards Craig. yeah let's these studies are just not possible so under those circumstances it is it's very very difficult whether we're talking about muscle bone tendon ligament it's very very difficult to talk about an evidence-based intervention because getting that evidence is very very difficult we have to extrapolate and i think that's probably from many of the people listening to this, this podcast that's where the skill of the practitioner is it's taking these like little bits and pieces and figuring out okay well what is the best thing that we can do under these circumstances and, and make it as evidence-based as possible but but there is i don't think we can really say okay there's there's definitely a clear evidence-based intervention here that's going to work for muscle injury or that's going to work for for bone injury or tendon ligament injury i mean of course that said there's there's going to be a fair amount of crossover and there's going to be some basic givens that probably we, we should all be looking at for one no matter what injury it is but i mean you know, a lot of that really is just common sense to be perfectly honest well that it's, you know, that's it and it's important because as practitioners as even a recipient who's the owner of a fresh injury we still are going to sit there and go well hang on this is all very well but i still want to improve the problem if i can and i guess we can look at this in several ways if you're going to use evidence but it's poor evidence or it's not it's not really relevant to you it has the capacity to make things worse it's sort of a if it ain't broken don't try and fix it type thought you know it may, it may be blemished but it's not actually broken so stop fiddling around with it it's this desire to solve a problem the desire to interfere rightly or wrongly or for good reasons or for bad and or face it the desire of a commercial interest to try and get involved in this you know said supplement is going to solve this problem for you but at the end of the day you're trying to make a decision of look what are the things that i that i can be confident that will help or at least won't harm this i guess is one as graham makes a point in i think it's paper paper to podium i think in that one they talk about you know at first do no harm you know that's got to be a perspective here but i think where we were talking about this before is this business of okay there's not a huge amount necessarily in the sports science sports nutrition sphere but if we look a bit wider at some of this stuff people who have had horrific injuries and find themselves in hospital and and so on there's a little bit of data that comes from the medical research sphere and can we translate that into this scenario what what do you think about that craig that general topic and then specifically what i just asked. yeah i mean i think you know that's it isn't it i think we've got no choice but to try and extrapolate across as we've said because that, that evidence is, is is difficult to get to and i think certainly you know that there is some good evidence out there for example from you know trauma wards and things like this that shows for example that trauma particularly things like burns and and, and those kinds of severe injuries induce a, a hypermetabolic state which is is showing that actually you know recovery from these sorts of injuries and these processes do require quite a significant support for for metabolism coming back to an earlier point energy availability for example becomes mm. quite an Im important and interesting topic there because there's a bit of a balance you know certainly if you've got quite a severe injury that's causing immobilization and prolonged periods of immobilization where for example your mobility is reduced a little bit or quite a lot 
then you may logically want to try and limit the amount of energy so that you're not putting on fat mass, et cetera, in your athlete. But at the same time, if it's a severe injury, the recovery process from those injuries requires quite a high amount of of energy. Similarly, with things like protein and, and the other big one, which everyone seems to go to immediately is kind of either doing it pharmacologically or nutritionally is trying to create an anti-inflammatory response. And of course, again, there's a there's a double-edged sword there. I think under certain circumstances, that's probably quite relevant. But on other circumstances, of course, the inflammatory response is an important part of, of healing and of adaptation. So again, there's a, there's a bit of a tightrope to walk there with, you know, you can't just assume that throwing a load of anti-inflammatory nutrients at a particular problem, if indeed that even works, which is a different conversation. I think throwing a load of anti-inflammatory medications or you know nutrients at something is is potentially not the way to go without proper consideration. I think it, it has to be balanced. I and mean, certainly where you've got you know real extremes of of inflammation and this is prolonged and it's and it's not resolving itself, then of course that then it makes some sense. It does make sense. It makes sense because we also can't, and bear with me when I say this, because it's a bit of a tongue twister, but it makes sense because it also doesn't make sense insofar as we can't make sense of it because we don't have sufficient evidence to be able to understand what's truly going on. So this business of fiddling with things, going, right, okay, I'm going to bung in some anti-inflammatories, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Well, you don't know what you're doing. So maybe, you know, is that a good idea? Maybe in research, that's an experiment. And I'm thinking, well, obviously, you need to give the body what it needs, sufficient energy and so on. And then I'm thinking, well, what about the concept of reverse engineering, where you go, right, well, we we know that in, in a healthy person, in order to induce muscle protein synthesis, et cetera, which, of course, is an adaptation to an injury stimulus, we know how to support that process, or at least we know a little bit more about how to support that process. And some people might look at it very basically and go, well, we're still trying to increase repair of muscle tissue. There's a a protein synthesis that's going on. Do you think there's some legs in looking at it that way? Is that what some researchers are looking at? What what do you think? Yeah, it's quite interesting, that whole thing as well. I mean, again, you've got things there of, you know, are the effects the direct effect of the injury or are they are there other indirect effects of things like the immobilization? So I think if we go through some of those injuries that require immobilization, again, a lot of the evidence base that we come back to are things like bed rest studies, for example, or studies where individuals have been casted. So their their mobility is is reduced on Mm. one leg and then they're looked at then as an internal control. So you compare the casted leg with limited. It's obviously not. It's not no movement. It's limited movement versus the the, the, the non-casted leg that that can move more freely. But even a lot of those immobilization studies, these immobilization studies are conducted in otherwise healthy individuals, for example, and you know without injury. And I think under those circumstances, we know, for example, or I say we know there are studies out there that suggest that 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 immobilization induces a kind of an anabolic resistance type of of, of response in the muscle. And certainly, again, there's a little bit of evidence around from Rennie's old group and some bits from Stu Phillips and and more recently from the likes of Ben Wall at Exeter that are are showing that maybe protein to a certain extent can help limit that level of anabolic resistance, but doesn't necessarily fully recover the response. So, I mean, again, that's kind of looking at it very much from the immobilization perspective, as there's less information, like I say, in relation to what happens if that were an also injured person who was also immobilized. And I think Mm. 
that probably stands to reason that that would induce some further perturbations in things like you know muscle protein synthesis and breakdown rates but i don't know if we really know certainly i don't think we know what that would be from from injured elite athletes so i'm not even really sure whether we've got good information in in humans generally under those circumstances i'm pretty sure we don't i've tried looking uh, i can't really find anything to aid this conversation you know there's some interesting stuff isn't there on sort of bilateral exercises and okay your left leg's damaged but let's exercise the right leg you know there's some interesting stuff that that's come up there i've talked to people about that before but i think the one that tends to be the spanner in the works is this concept of anabolic resistance and you've mentioned it a couple of times there i think could you just for those that don't understand what that actually means do you want to just quickly explain what anabolic resistance is yeah, it's just basically the, the response, I suppose, of the body in terms of particularly we're talking about generally that the muscle under these circumstances, the response to a, a normally given dose, for example, of, of protein, of amino acids would be diminished compared to where you would normally expect it to be. So in other words, that there's a certain resistance to the, the normal muscle building response of the body to that provision. And so that's what it really is just as it sounds it's resistance to the anabolic effect that you would normally see with 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 something that was provided and usually we're talking about protein amino acid provision here provided to induce an anabolic effect you know is there anything that might exacerbate that i'm thinking either locally in the environment of the injured muscle or bone or whatever uh, or tissue in this case muscle tissue and or globally you know to the body to the person I'm just taking a wild stab at things like you may have sufficient protein, but there's still a reduced energy availability, energy deficiency state is having a more global effect on how the body's... The obvious one that, that's normally studied, of course, and something that you and I will start to know more and more about is ageing, of course, and that's that's the one... I don't know what you're talking one. about. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one thing that is clear. So, yeah, I mean, I think we know that these particular processes are highly energy-driven processes, and so it, it kind of stands to reason that, that maybe there would be some reduction in that response if in individuals who were you know, under chronic low energy availability... And I'm not really completely sure that that's been really, really well studied. I mean, I know it is starting to be, and, and there are a few studies around suggesting that that would be the case. But intuitively, that does, you know, does make sense that if you aren't providing the system with enough energy, then, you know, some of these processes, you know, things like muscle protein synthesis that you would want to be elevated to induce, you know, recovery and adaptation in muscle may be adversely affected. I think that is. Yeah, presumably things like a very stressed individual might be less likely to recover, yeah. but I I don't know. I mean, a really I interesting one, actually, isn't it? I mean, I think that's something that we've been thinking about a little bit more in relation to, to bone stress injuries, mm. mainly in terms of the development of bone stress injuries rather than in terms of hampering recovery. But it stands to reason that's probably it, is, is this, you know, an increase in anxiety, an increase in psychological stress, which may manifest as things like, you know, poor sleep or certain, you know, physiological responses to the to the stress. And of course, that would be highly relevant to an athlete in competition, be highly relevant to an athlete who's injured and is worried about things like 
losing their place in a team or missing a competition or losing their livelihood for some athletes who are not maybe as well protected from that perspective as others. I think that is an understudied area, actually, both in relation to injury prevention and risk, but also in terms of recovery for, from injury. And it gets even more complicated, and I'm certainly no expert in that area, but it is certainly something that we've started to to think about. The reason why I'm thinking about this, Craig, is because a while ago, I, I did this podcast with Prof Neil Walsh about athlete immunity. And of course, his argument is, is that, you know, we've got to stop focusing sort of on the micro level on this stuff, the, the sort of the total load of stress, which includes emotional stress, travel stress, environmental stress. It is the total accumulation of that needs to be factored in. Well, th this surely is a similar concept when it comes to the body trying to, to heal itself, to recover something where we're not just focused specifically on the the injury to the specific muscle, but to what affects the the body, the human being as a whole. Like you, and you just summarised all that in terms of sleep and and everything else. But of course, to you as a researcher, that just makes things even harder to study, though, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it becomes you know, you know, because because anything and any injury generally is 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 a pretty multifactorial thing. It's not something that you know can really isolate particularly easily. I mean, some things more easily than others, but you know, take something that, that we've studied for a little while, bone stress injuries. It's definitely multifactorial, and so it does become very very hard to to nail down nail down sort of one factor as being more important than than another because you know it's very very hard to study all of these things as we've already mentioned in the same person under the same situation under the same conditions and that person's response under those conditions could be completely different to another person's who's essentially gotten the same injury because some other factors have been, been more pertinent and, and yeah. come to play in those individuals than in, in those individuals. So it is very, very difficult in something that's quite so multifactorial, particularly as well, when sometimes you can't necessarily even predict the, the circumstances under which the injury is going to, you know, is going to take yeah. place. But of course, for us, Another spanner in the works is, you know, the body is remarkable in its ability to survive. And even in cases of high degrees of stress and so on, the body still finds a way of fixing itself, albeit maybe not optimally in the way in which we're imagining here, return to play. But it's, you know, you, you look at people sustaining injuries in combat and then in imprisonment. I mean, all sorts of stuff, which we don't have time to talk about. But where I was going to go down here was... What we can do as nutritionists is at least, you know, ensure that they're getting what they need in terms of, of energy, protein, good nutrition to provide the body what, it's, what it needs and let the body solve its own problems. But of course, there's this inherent need that we have to get super clever and provide pills and potions to solve problems, you know, which again has a commercial backing to it, of course. But those are gen you know, genuinely, there are places where these things can help. And I'm thinking, for example, not just necessarily protein supplements, particularly in maybe plant-fed vegans, et cetera, there may be an argument there. And I've discussed this to the nines in various podcasts, particularly with Kev Tipton in all of those. So I'm I'm happy that we've done those conversations a great deal of justice. But another one we did a podcast on, which was with Chris McGlory, was in the area of EFA, essential fatty acids, fish oils, that sort of thing. You know, I can summarize Chris's comment about this essentially comes down to that supplement by virtue of the word supplement is that it has a value if 
you're not getting enough of these omega-3s, for example, in your diet, but taking it on top of a sufficient diet, you know, probably has no benefits at all. Now that's where that conversation ended. I don't know if there's any new research to change my mind. Is there anything on that topic that changes your mind? No, I mean, I again, not something I'm a particular expert in, but but no, not not that I'm I'm particularly aware of. I mean, I think certainly if we go back to looking at a lot of the sort of you know omega three sort of supplementation studies, I think they were. Again, coming back to that point, initially studies because of, because of potential anti-inflammatory properties, I suppose. But I think in a lot of those early studies, including some of Chris's, I think if I'm again, I, I might be remembering this wrong, but I think you know they were reasonably short periods of supplementation, a couple of weeks or something like that. But but with with quite significant amounts of fish oils compared to what you might sort of find in in the diet, sort of several times you know higher than what you might get in a, in a typical diet before you would see an induced positive effect and so i think you know there's always got to be that balance of as you said before you know thinking about okay well is the benefit does the benefit outweigh any potential risk do we even know what the risk is you know first of all do no harm but i think the the, the trouble with an awful lot of supplements is we don't have you know we probably have reasonably good safety data in relation to the way in which most or in relation to the time frames in which most studies have applied them because people don't necessarily always take them like that or behave in that way, you know, particularly if we're taking some of these things prophylactically. So in other words, we're taking these things on a relatively constant basis to try and prevent an injury, for example, or, 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 or for some other purpose. We don't really have an awful lot of really good safety data on most supplements over a prolonged period of time. And here I'm thinking sort of not necessarily weeks, but more months into, into years as some people might take them. And so you know, I think even that's got to be borne in mind when when really thinking about supplements. You know, a lot of the time these things are, you know, because it's inherent necessarily in what we're saying, but a lot of the time it's supplementing what's already in the diet to an yeah. extent that goes well beyond the diet. Not always, of course, if we're trying to correct deficiencies and things that might be slightly different for some things. But a lot of the time we are talking about things that go beyond what we would normally oh, find in a typical and, diet. And also, Craig, you're mm. reminding me of a lecture you gave on our program a few years ago as with much of the stuff currently we you actually gave a lecture about supplements i remember you were talking about all this stuff but also there's something there's another area which is the the sort of the combination effect of all these things you know they all form ingredients and even gunpowder is made from a, a number of relatively innocuous substances but when combined in a certain way it's nasty stuff do you want to just quickly mention that because the, the thing about nutrition or, or health, alternative health, whatever. People love to throw supplements of these things. And it hopefully just comes from a meaning well perspective. You know, it does, it apparently some research shows it does some good. So more is better, blah, 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 blah. But they haven't necessarily considered the combined effects of these things and the risks that that might have on, for example, recovery from injury or immune status or whatever is it you know is there any thoughts you had on that you wanted to quickly share yeah i mean well i think that's the thing and it, it comes back to that level of complexity and again in something that's already really really hard to study you're then throwing in you know multiple ingredients which by definition are all thought to be active otherwise they wouldn't necessarily have thrown them in and it's then trying to discern first of all is there an effect is is the effect greater in the combination than one particular you know ingredient by itself and and quite often the answer to that is is no 
And the prime example of this, for example, is is, is pre-workout supplements, really, where whether they work, whether they don't work, that's a, that's a debate for a different day for, for, for somebody else. But, you know, these kind of multi-ingredient things that that are thrown together for a particular purpose. And, and, and maybe it's really only one of those ingredients that really is having an effect anyway. And I think this is becoming a little bit more popular. I've had a number of conversations with people recently. This is becoming a little bit more popular in terms of the sort of supplements to help with injury recovery is that they're starting to add, you know, multiple different ingredients in to, to supplements to prevent against injury. And, 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 you know, we know that some things go reasonably well together, vitamin D and calcium as a, as an example. That's probably one of the things, particularly in the in the bone field, that's been studied over over some time. But I mean, I think it becomes very, very difficult to isolate effects. And obviously, the flip side of that as well is it becomes even more difficult to determine what the safety profile of those things might be over time, particularly taken in some of the amounts that that we're talking about. It's going to happen because a product, in my view, become this is more convinced me personally. I just believe buyers' behaviour is swayed towards a more plausible solution to their problem and the more ingredients that are in there. <laughs> and that's what they do when they a new revised formula. It's got another two useless ingredients in there, but it looks more plausible because it's got a new fab formula. Well, or they put a little bit more of it or more of yeah. whatever it is in, right? Because, yeah. you know, again, buyer's behaviour is is there to believe that, that more is better, generally speaking. Yeah, indeed. And, of course, we if we go, well, we do know that sufficient energy intake is important sufficient we think sufficient protein intake is important and we apply that more is better it's probably better to have more than not enough but then again there are consequences to that when you're injured you're immobile if you're consuming too many calories you might actually gain weight which might make you more susceptible to injury once you return to play on less than 100 percent Again, it's that, you know, it's that knife edge we talked about earlier, isn't it? Particularly with, you know, energy, energy intake, because, you know, like I said, we, we know, for example, that particularly let's take that under consideration of individuals who are immobilized. Well, it stands to reason probably that their energy expenditure is going to go down. But so then we want to probably almost certainly reduce our energy intake a little bit but we also know that you know depending on the injury that that might induce some kind of you know hypermetabolic state for want of a better word i don't necessarily particularly like the term but you, you know what i mean mm. you know these are requiring quite energy driven processes and so a little bit more energy is possibly required depends on how mobile you are during immobilization and how you're getting around if you're hobbling around on crutches then certainly your energy expenditure is going to be higher than if you were walking around Okay, so you're not training, you don't have the the training induced energy expenditure, but your energy expenditure, if you're doing a fair amount of walking on crutches is going to be more than it would be if you were just walking around. So you probably need a little bit more back onto the energy intake side of things. So it's, you know, I think balance is key, but what balance really means is still pretty difficult. You have to try and monitor that in terms of the athlete trying to maybe make sure that they're not putting on too much fat mass or losing too much fat free mass as, yeah, in, as much exactly. as you possibly can when they're immobile. Yeah, that's great. If sports nutritionists in particular are or at least should be well-trained in assessing body composition in the field, Isaac methodology is an incredibly useful method, particularly if you've assessed them beforehand, you've got a baseline to compare that limb or whatever to and you know see what's happening with the muscle and or body fat 
etc. That's another interesting one there, of course, mm-hmm. though. So you may, for example, be mobilized due to a bone injury, but if you're immobilized due to a bone injury, that's still going to affect your muscle and it's still going to affect your tendon potentially and your ligament potentially. So again, it comes back to that idea of one injury type of injury following a different type of injury. But mm-hmm. actually, I think that's probably something that to a certain extent is also under considered as well, is that when we're talking about an injury that induces immobilization, we're probably talking about something that's not only going to affect the injured tissue, but also the, the, the tissues more generally and indirectly affected by the immobilization. And so, yeah. so thinking about that is, is also probably quite pertinent. Yeah. I mean, look, at this point, I can I can almost hear people's heads exploding going, oh, wow, this is I thought it was just going to be a Band-Aid. Take this pill, take this, you know, eat a bit more protein. But obviously, it's not as simple as that because you've got to consider all this stuff. We'd be multi-millionaires if we knew the answer to oh, that single right. pill. Yeah, I'm off to the bookies now, Craig. That's what I'm doing. So you mentioned bone, and I do want to get into tendons and ligaments and so on. I think that's a really interesting area. You know more about bone health than most people in this context. I know you've referred to it already a number of times, but since we're talking now specifically about bone injuries, what are your thoughts on that? And what do we need to know as it pertains to trying to do something about it? Again, it's it's, it's one of those things. And I think there are a number of things that probably would seem relevant for prevention and treatment of bone-related injuries. I mean, I think on a general nutrient intake level, we know certainly that there are you know, going to be a number of key nutrients that are particularly pertinent for bone formation. So things like protein, calcium, phosphorus, magnesium, vitamin D, they're kind of the some of the big ones. And of course, there are a few other things that we know are kind of related to or cofactors in bone metabolism. So things like vitamin A, vitamin K, a few lesser known things, potentially developing things like boron, silicon, zinc, magnesium, again, probably iron, some of these things where people might be thinking generally, oh, I know athletes who are deficient in some of these things anyway. And so I think it stands to reason that because those nutrients are key, if you've got an athlete who is deficient or insufficient in, in, in one of those nutrients, it stands to reason that it would be beneficial to try and get them to a point where they are sufficient. So in that sense, they are, I suppose, what you would say, taking in a well-balanced diet. And I think, you know, under those circumstances, the low-hanging fruit of the well-balanced diet, and if, you know, you can't match those requirements of the well-balanced diet, then some consideration of supplementation to correct the deficiency. That sort of stands to reason. But one of the big problems there is that maybe this is another thing just to briefly touch upon is that just correcting a deficiency isn't necessarily optimal. They're not the same. They're not the same thing. So if we go towards things that are recommended daily amounts, for example, of certain nutrients, those things are designed to prevent a deficiency in the majority of the population. Right? That's not necessarily saying that those intakes are optimal for particular tissue adaptation in an elite athlete it's not it's not the same thing and i don't think we know the latter i'm fairly sure we don't know the latter in fact i think we you know we we can all get to the point of what recommended daily amounts are but are there any of those nutrients for which going above that recommended daily amount may be more optimal for adaptation in the athlete is a is a different question i'm talking about adaptation in terms of recovery from injury here specifically of course or or prevention of injury but going back to the bone question i mean i think there are a few key things obviously Avoiding chronic low energy availability would seem to be particularly pertinent. 
avoiding low carbohydrate availability, particularly over a chronic and prolonged period of time would be seem to be pertinent. Certainly sufficient protein intake would be important. And I think in individuals where there may be a higher protein intake, then it's making sure that calcium is at least sufficient. Because there is a potential problem with high animal protein intake, in particular in the bone, if calcium consumption is low. I think we've pretty much poo-pooed the idea that higher protein intake is bad for bone now. That's pretty clear. It's not the case, except maybe in certain circumstances where calcium intake is particularly low. So under those circumstances, keeping calcium to a reasonable level. And then that would be the same again anyway for bone. Calcium and vitamin D would be the other ones that are pretty obvious. And So at least I think avoiding deficiencies in most of those other things and and making sure your athlete is not energy deficient and carbohydrate deficient over prolonged periods of time would all be relatively sensible and, and known things as far as the bone is concerned. But there are some other things, you know, for example, dehydration and rehydration, which at least have a theoretical potential linkage, but are, but are really massively under understudied. Yeah, I was just thinking as you were talking about vitamin D and calcium and so on. And of course, it's worth mentioning, uh, and this sort of links to my comment about being prepared to deal with injuries on the basis that recovery of a deficiency or even an insufficiency of certain nutrients can take a very long time, can't it? Do you want to just quickly, like calcium and bone, for example, it's not like you take some supplements today and it's all fixed for tomorrow, is it? No, I mean, I think generally sort of responding to the acute nature of of training, then then obviously most athletes don't train like I do, train today and not really fancy it tomorrow. So I might do it the day after that, or maybe even the day after that, depending on what athletes you're talking about. You know, some athletes are training, you know, a couple of times a day, most days. You take elite triathletes, for example, and those guys are bonkers. They're training multiple times per day, pretty much every day. So under those circumstances, you know, I think that's what I was coming back to as well in terms of, you know, what what might be optimal for the athlete is is potentially a little bit different under circumstances like that. Generating sufficiencies after deficiency, again, depending on how severe the deficiency is, particularly in things like vitamin D, iron, you know, some of those things that are a little bit more difficult to to manipulate from a dietary perspective um, can take time, you know, can take weeks. I've done some podcasts. Like I'm thinking with Dr. Dan Owens, we've done one on exercise-induced muscle injury, which links a little bit to, to what you were talking about with muscle injuries. But obviously, you know, a huge amount of his work's been on vitamin D, and we talked about that. And there's a lot of stuff there that is pretty mind-boggling, but none of it's going to be a quick fix, obviously. And when we think about return to play, we're after a quick fix, aren't we? So there's lots of things that we can do, but what are the things that have the greatest, the most likely to have the most rapid impact, I guess, is is sort of what we're interested in with all this, which I guess for muscle and, and bone, for example, it still comes back to getting enough energy availability yeah, and protein much, intake yeah. and so on doesn't it well best guess as it currently stands yeah best I mean, I guess. that's it i mean I th- you know i think you know, coming back to your earlier point just to reiterate i mean a lot of it's probably probably better if you're not deficient in the first place that's probably going to yeah. be the thing that's going to help most i think you know it becomes even more complicated when you think is there any beneficial effect when you go beyond you know so so if if your individual is sufficient in a particular nutrient already is there any benefit in in that nutrient under the certain circumstances in going beyond that level of, of sufficiency and you know, pe- you know vitamin d is the obvious one and 
And Dan's obviously done quite a bit of work on this over the years in terms of increasing. And there was that going back a few years now, there was that drive again for more and more vitamin D is better. And you were seeing, you know, athletes with, you know, extremely high 25 OHD levels. Well, there's also the translation of advice problem, isn't there? I I had a football player who was taking his once a week dose every day, 12,000 IUs or no, 50,000. It took 50,000 IUs in one day. Yeah. I mean, you see the same thing with things like creatine supplementation as well, which is another thing potentially that that may be beneficial for recovery of muscle. Again, not really too many high quality studies in that area. But, you know, again, translation of that information, you've got people taking amounts well beyond what they need to take to really load the muscle. And But you made me think, actually, because particularly with elite athletes, we're trying to return them to play as fast as possible. So we're also trying to think post-injury, beyond the injury. When they land, we're getting, you know, the undercarriage is down. We're getting ready to land whilst in the air. Their body's been fixing itself. We want to hit the ground running, not limping. And I guess there's some thoughts there about we're not necessarily trying to focus on the injury. We're just trying to make sure that they're prepared for performance as soon as they're able. And then the worry would be, is any are any of those strategies going to inhibit recovery in the damaged tissue? And your facial expression already answers the question, like, maybe. Yeah, I mean, the obvious one there, again, is coming back to that issue of sort of things that that, that promote an, an anti-inflammatory response, isn't mm-hmm. it? Or allegedly promote an anti-inflammatory response. And, you know, so to a certain extent, maybe acutely, if you've got a high level of inflammation that's not really resolving itself, then maybe you want to definitely go down that route. But I think the closer you get to looking at you know adapting back into performance you want some of those performance related adaptations that, that that may well be again arguably you know negatively impacted by some of those anti-inflammatory nutrient intakes again there's multiple ifs within that statement but i'm just coming up with an example there for things that that might sort of match what you were saying there in your scenario in terms of what factors, you know, there's multiple transitions there, isn't there? I suppose there's transitions in that early phase of injury. There's transitions through that, you know, if it's a prolonged injury, how do we manage that middle portion where the athlete's starting to get particularly stressed about not being able to play, getting anxious, you know, mental health may be suffering, all those other things that we've already talked about. Probably some of the, the energy intake stuff is becoming particularly pertinent there as time goes goes by. And then there's that third phase is we're starting to prepare people for return to play where we may be taking a, you know, a slightly more performance focus to our, our nutritional approach there rather than maybe a recovery from injury focus or a, an, an adaptation or stabilization process to our nutrition. So it's, I think it's probably three, certainly three key phases there. So what, again, making it even more complicated, what do you really mean by recovery from injury, I suppose? Yeah, well... I can see multiple podcasts coming out of this one and multiple PhD projects for sure. We can't have this conversation about bones and muscles, et cetera, without talking about what sort of keeps these things all connected and stable and so on without getting into tendons and ligaments. And tendinopathy is a extremely common musculoskeletal issue, particularly in the sports I've worked in. I've, I've frequently have had athletes with tendinopathy issues that I've been asked, can I help anywhere in this? I think back to Keith Barr's work, obviously, I was lucky to go out and co-present with him on various sports nutrition topics out in Astana Doha, I mean, a few years ago now. 
just it was fantastic to hear him talk about this stuff. And we've done a podcast on this, by the way, for those that listening, we can listen to Keith talk about this stuff. But bringing this up to date to where we're at now in 2023, what are your perspectives on this? Again, no pun intended. Is there much legs as it comes to nutrition and in, in this, or it's very much a depends situation, I guess? Yeah, again, not not necessarily the thing that I focus on the most, and, and certainly Keith would know a lot more about mm. it than, than I would. But I mean, I think it probably hasn't changed that much since you you spoke to Keith about it. And I suppose that's one of the problems. Again, we've come, you know, we talked several times about the problem about studying these things. But you know, even when you can study them, these studies take a long time. So it's when you're talking about we may feel quite a bit older in three or four or five years, but actually the science generally hasn't moved on massively in, in that time an awful lot of the time, particularly these focused and relatively niche areas. I mean, certainly, you know, tendinopathy, particularly patella tendinopathy and Achilles tendinopathy and, and ligament injuries. And the obvious one there is ACL injury are, are certainly very pertinent injuries. They're still pretty common injuries. They're not really, you know, abated that much. Certainly, there there is a definite requirement to try to prevent and treat these injuries. And I think probably some of the things that Keith would have talked about would have been things like bioactive collagen peptides, I'm assuming, Mm -hmm. things like glycine, for example, which is the main amino acid found in collagen. You know, these things have been played around with in terms of potential recovery for for tendon and, and ligament. But again, a lot of the time that's studied in either cell or animal models of, of damage where, you know, and quite often under those circumstances, these things are artificial models of injury. For example, they're induced by things like collagenase injury, you know, which is an enzyme responsible for the degradation of the collagen. So that it, it's a clean injury compared to the sort of an injury that you might get in all the other multifaceted things that you might see with with a human injury. But I don't think there's a, a silver bullet necessarily with regards to factors that, that would underpin tendon and collagen injury. Like I say, people have played around with these, these bioactive collagen peptides, glycine, and coming back to those other things. You know, we're talking particularly about things like gelatin and hydrolyzed collagen. Some of the studies that you know Keith have, have done have shown in part some reasonably positive outcomes in relation to isolated injuries, I guess. Isolated, yeah. He said everything you just said. And you know, there's so much more work to be done on on these areas. And of course, some of this stuff has been picked up and run way out of bounds by the commercial field, very expensive products, you know. Yeah, exactly. For training or whatever. I guess one area that I have found of interest in my own practice is purely anecdotal though, is in vegan stroke plant-based athletes who have very low glycine you know yeah. rich diets that sort of thing it, it seems plausible to me that there can be something there but i've had plenty of athletes has done nothing for at all but then they've been immobilized it's been very difficult to get them to do well i think that's exercise. the thing if you look at quite a few of the studies around this area where there's been a positive effect of, of you know some of these these nutrients that we've just been talking about or indeed some of the other nutrients that may kind of underpin you know, be be factors in collagen formation, like vitamin C, copper, for example, those mm. those kinds of things. Generally speaking, a lot of the positive responses that you see are when you also associate that with some kind of mechanical loading. So you see beneficial effects on on some of these collagen-related outcomes when you've got a combination of the, the nutrient intake and the or the supplement and some some physical activity. 
Of course, one of the problem is if you've got an injury that causes you to be significantly immobilized, then you don't necessarily make it's not quite so easy to really be physically active in in the same way. So obviously it's very difficult to match that in terms of recovery for, for, from an injury. Maybe intuitively these things would potentially be less effective under those circumstances. And, and certainly, you know, that kind of again, like I say, intuitively probably is is the case. But again, from a very specific, well-controlled, randomized control trial, they don't really exist in human elite athletes, unfortunately. No. Well, that's what's important about these conversations that I have with you and everyone for this podcast. You know, it's all about addressing the evidence and then unpacking it and talking about well, what does this even mean? How relevant actually is this to said challenge? And actually, as we've discussed today, <laughs> we still don't know much about this stuff. And, you know, it's very easy for somebody to Google stuff or just read a review without necessarily understanding how how high quality that review is or how relevant that review is to the specific situations that, you know, you're dealing with is something that I hope that we've helped people with. If, if you and I can have a conversation for an hour where we're not able to pinpoint any magic bullets or anything, you know, it, it shows that there is still so much more to learn about this. And the value that that gives researchers and practitioners, I think, is is huge. Yeah, I mean, I think we can generally only, you know, as you rightly say, we can only really talk in relatively general terms most of the time. We can't really talk about a specifically clear evidence-based intervention that's definitively going to work for a particular type of injury under a particular circumstance. And so I think, again, it really comes back to and where I've got respect for you guys as practitioners is trying to work through all of that kind of fog of information and, and go, well, get it, because at the end of the day, You've got to you've got to either decide to do something, and if you're going to do something, well, and quite a lot of the time you're probably under pressure, I would imagine, to do something. So it's then, well, what do you do? How do how do you make that decision? And I think that's where that's where the skilled practitioner is is well, particularly valuable. Greg, you're right, and you meant you talked earlier about we're sort of out of time here, so we'll we'll wrap this up. But action is important in one form or another, and that's where things can go wrong because you start doing things for the sake of it and it ends up being worse than doing nothing. However, to the patient, to the athlete, not doing anything is a very worrying scenario. It's an anxiety producing yeah. situation where sometimes you go, look, okay, here's your collagen shots. Here's your extra protein, whatever. In my head, I'm a hundred percent not sure if this is going to work. I'm, I'm, I, I think it might help. The evidence is not strong either way, but I do know the placebo effect is also going to have some value here. And if the expectation is, is doc, whatever, give me something, that is another factor you have to go through as a practitioner. So it's difficult being a practitioner in the trenches. And there's a, there's a lot of this stuff to, to contemplate either which way, which is, again, why we have these conversations, because you need to be able to make those decisions in pretty chaotic scenarios where... The other thing is, is your patient, your client, your athlete, if you don't give some sort of a recommendation that is perceived to be a satisfactory recommendation, they're going to go find a solution elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think this, there's, there's you know, so many problems packed up in there. It's probably as a practitioner, your job's under threat. If you are constantly saying, well, there's no evidence, I think, you know, nothing is probably the only real sensible thing that. <laughs> The athletes getting strenuous, as you say, the athlete then said, right, well, I'm going to Google this and, you know, that's even more dangerous and they're going to do something. And if what they're doing is what they're finding on Google, that's going to be even more problematic. 
So, yeah, I mean, it is difficult. I mean, I think sometimes action has to, as you say, has to happen as a practitioner. Yeah. It's just then trying to make that as evidence-based and as sensible Absolutely. as possible without something that's going to do that athlete, you know, harm. But, but you know, really trying to pinpoint an evidence-based intervention a lot of the time is particularly difficult, particularly in this area where it's very, very difficult to undertake the sorts of studies that you would need to generate said evidence base. And I think that is the biggest problem in in, in this area is it's just very difficult to, to study. It's a very, very contentious thing, isn't it? No, it is. Yeah. And I'll have announced this before this podcast comes out, but we've just had a paper accepted for publication all about evidence-based practice guidelines and a framework for critical thinking for practitioners to apply evidence into practice because it is difficult. It's really difficult to do this stuff. So hopefully that will, will help everyone. We've managed to chat this long, Craig. So once again, two geeks obsessed about this topic have managed to, I think, have a pretty broad conversation about this very important topic and I, for one, have benefited hugely from this chat, so thank you. I know the listeners will benefit too. To remind everyone, you have moved, etc. So if people want to follow you and your work and and so on, what's the best way to keep tabs on you, Craig? Yeah, so the Twitter and the, the Instagram haven't changed. They're the same as they they always, always link to those. haven't yep. changed those. Don't ask me what they are because I can never remember them, but but they haven't changed. That's the main thing. Uh, so if people want to sort of search me out, then Google me for Institute of Sport, Manchester Metropolitan University, and, and I should come up with contact details, email, etc. Brilliant. Well, look, thank you, Craig. It's always great to chat with you. And I know we're going to have other things to talk about down the line. So I'll look forward to welcoming you back. Yeah, no, thanks, Aaron. Enjoyed it as always. Always a pleasure, never a chore, as they say. <laughs> always, always. Thanks, mate. Cheers.